Hey there, welcome to the How to Market Your Horse Business podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. My name is Denise Alvarez. I have the pleasure of hosting you here each week, and I am truly so glad that you're here. So just a little bit about me before we jump into today's podcast. I always like to do a quick introduction in case we are new friends. So I do have a business called Storm Lily Marketing, where I get to help horse business owners like you to convert your website visitors into your customers. I do that in a few different ways, and it's through coaching, through website design and website content writing, email marketing strategy, and then I also have a new Social Stride monthly membership where I help you DIY your social media. Now, I get that not everybody gets excited about marketing or even loves it, and that's why I created this podcast, because I love to help you break it down and make it doable. So I'll give you some step-by-step strategies, some basic how-tos, so that I can help you not only see what's possible when you market your horse business, but also so I can guide you through that process so that you can make it happen. Now today, I'm very excited because we have a guest on this podcast, and I love to bring guests on here so that you can meet new friends and I get to make new friends in the process as well. Now today, my guest is attorney Joe Belasco. And I actually met her last year. I've stayed in touch and we are in a couple of the same Facebook groups. And so as I was planning out content for the podcast, I thought she would be a great person to come. Now you may be thinking, what is that? got to do with marketing, right? But what we're talking about today has a lot to do with marketing, and it is all about trademarks and copyrights. Now, do not shut this off because you think it doesn't apply to you, because Joe is going to break this down and show how it really does apply to every horse business. She's going to give you some step-by-step processes for how what it would look like to copyright or trademark and how do you know which one you need and how long will it take to make that happen? What are the risks if you don't do it? It was a very rich conversation and I really appreciate how well she breaks things down and she does not use lingo that you will not understand, which I love because as you know, sometimes when we talk to attorneys, then we're like, okay, can you give that to me in plain English? Well, she's doing that and it really is good. So I hope that you will listen in. I hope that you'll apply what you're learning and I hope that you will visit Joe's website because she has a lot of great information on there as well. Of course, I will link to that for you in the show notes at stormlily.com slash 34. But for now, listen in to my conversation with attorney Joe Belasco. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. I really appreciate it and I am so excited to introduce you to my listeners. Thank you so much for having me today. You bet. Well, as we jumped on here, before we jumped into the interview, I did share just a little bit about you, but I would love for you to tell us in your own words. Can you share some of your background and how you ended up becoming an attorney that works specifically with equine businesses? Sure. So I have been a horsewoman actually for more than 45 years. I turned 53 this year. I'm 52 now. So I've really had a lifelong love of horses, been involved with them in various aspects. I graduated from law school in 1993, and I really knew in high school that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I actually thought I wanted to be an assistant district attorney and maybe even a district attorney. So that was really my focus. And 
interestingly, when I graduated law school, the DA's office had a hiring freeze. <laughs> so even though I'd been a student <laughs> prosecutor in Boston, I, I couldn't be hired because they weren't hiring anyone. So I actually at the time was working in the legal advisor's office for the Boston Police Department. So they hired me. And that was a fascinating job where I actually prosecuted internal affairs cases. I represented a police officers um, in depositions if somebody wanted documents or something from them. And I also went into court on firearm cases because you have to have a license to carry a firearm in Massachusetts. And I also worked with the entertainment industry. So Blown Away was a big movie that came out and I worked with MGM to see what logo could they use for their fake Boston Police Bomb Squad. And it was it was really a cool job, especially oh, so right out of law school. Yeah. Oh, it was, I worked with the X-Files. I mean, it was really, really fun. Uh, I even have a Boston Mounted Police patch. It, the Mounted Unit no longer exists, but I knew someone who'd been on the unit. So he gave me a Boston Mounted Police patch. So it was, it was really a cool job. And I got a lot of interesting experience. I argued before the highest court in Massachusetts and won a case. So it, it was really, wow. really interesting. Yeah. But it was also high stress, <laughs> as you can mm, imagine. Yeah. So, um, so I, when I left that job, I went into legal editing for a while and, and edited law enforcement publications. And that, that was a nice break. And then I actually took a break for a while and did nonprofit work, which I still do, and horse work. So I've been a horse professional for going on about 20 years now. I have... Um, done clinics and a DVD for fearful riders. I've traveled all over the West doing clinics several years ago. I've been a live-in trainer. I've trained horses. I've instructed riders from little kids up to people in their 70s. I've done a nonprofit horse program with wild horses. So I've done a whole variety of different roles in the horse community. You know, I've had a trainer. I had a advanced level eventing trainer in Massachusetts for five years. My, my basic training is in dressage, but I also love riding bareback and Western and just being with horses. So when I decided I wanted to go ahead and open up a virtual law firm, the natural niche was to do equine law because I, I understand horse people. And I also understand horse businesses because I've been there. (laughs) So it really is a natural it's a natural rhythm for me. And I can talk to horse people, whereas, you know, you go and talk to, to somebody, for example, about PPE right now, and somebody's going to think with COVID that that's, you know, personal protection. I know you mean a pre-purchase exam. So, you know, <laughs> I can cut down, for example, on the time people need to talk to an attorney, and I can say, oh, here's an issue you might not have thought about. So, um, and it's lots of fun, you know, especially with the trademark work, I get to meet all these people that have great equine businesses doing really cool things, you know, selling things and nonprofits. And, and I think I bring that knowledge and experience and also that excitement to my work. So that's, that's how I wound up doing equine law. I do, I do some other law too, but I really, really like focusing on this area of law because I know so much about it personally. Oh, that's so interesting. What a story. I love that. Obviously, I could just ask you more questions about your story all day, but we're here for you to share with my audience. But I would love for you to um, share a little bit more about what you mean when you say virtual law firm. That might be a little bit new or different to some of my listeners. Yes, that's a great question. So a virtual law firm 
the way that I mean it is my law firm is entirely online. So I am a real person <laughs> and I'm a real attorney. People have actually asked me that. I am a licensed attorney in the state of Massachusetts, but my firm is entirely online. So I don't have an office and I don't actually live in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. I have health issues that prevent me from living in that wet environment that, that have to do with asthma and all. So I live out in northwestern Nebraska, but I still work with people in that state. And then I also work with people federally, but everything I do is via email, phone, Zoom, Skype. So it's really convenient because I will work with people in the evening. I'll work with people on weekends, especially horse people. They may be teaching lessons all day and have to work at night or have to talk to me at night. So it's the same as a law firm, but it's entirely online. Now, it's different from something like LegalZoom because you that's not a law firm. And if you look at the terms and conditions, you're not actually dealing with lawyers there. They're not giving you legal advice. When somebody talks to me at my virtual law firm, I'm a lawyer giving them legal advice. And I should say right now, as I segue into this, the whole discussion we have today is not legal advice. I'm just giving educational advice because I don't have an attorney-client privilege with anyone. Um, Someone has to retain me to actually allow me to give them legal advice under the ethics rules. But that's that's what a virtual law firm is. And I've had it for years. COVID didn't cause me to go online. I simply chose this as my business model years ago. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. That is so interesting. And that last point, because yes, a lot of people were not virtual before last year. So that's a good point. You were a virtual law firm before last year even happened, but I am sure it certainly helped you um, along in that process. So one of the things that you said was how you can uniquely talk to horse people because you are one. And then people naturally just feel, I feel like they feel more comfortable with you, right? Like I know for me with marketing, when I talk to someone and I say, I do marketing for horse businesses, they're like, oh, that's great. Cause sometimes you talk to a marketing person and they have no idea what I'm talking about. And they think what works for their people would work for my people, but horse people are different, you know? So exactly what you said makes perfect sense because yeah, they want to work with somebody that understands them. So, and that's the case for my audience here. So I invited you here because I know that along the way you have worked with lots of different equine businesses. And one area that you talk about a lot on your website and that I've heard you talk about is trademarks and copywriting. So can you just give us a little overview before we dive into if and why horse businesses would even need those things? Can you share with us about what those are in our common level terms? Yes. And people get these confused. So I'm actually going to add one to those. There are patents, trademarks, and copyrights because I get people confused with these terms. Patents have to deal with an invention and I do not do patent. So patent lawyers are actually a very specific area of the law. It's it's a different bar in, some, in a lot of ways. So you have to actually pass the patent bar. But if you've invented something like a certain horseshoe, you need a patent lawyer. So I don't do that at all. Um, but I do trademarks and copyrights. Copyright protection has to deal with the creative work. So when you create something, for example, this podcast, when you create it, you do get the copyright. However, to get the best protection, you need to file and have approved a registration with the U.S. Copyright Office. So that's what a copyright is. It's all about creative works, books, podcasts, art, artwork, photographs. That's what a copyright is. A trademark. Okay, hold on, I'm going to pause you there, sure. if you would. Okay, when you say have protection, 
what does that actually mean? So you do have under U.S. law copyright protection whenever you create something. But if you're going to actually file a lawsuit and be able to prove you own the copyright and to get basically the the um, the award of damages that you should get, you need to have your copyright registered with the trade with the copyright office. So you're not actually going to be able to get the damages awarded under law unless you have that copyright registration. And a lot of people don't understand that. Hmm. They think once they create it, they're like, oh, I'm all set. And yeah, you have it's confusing because yeah, you have the copyright to it, but if you ever have to enforce it, you really need to make sure you already have the registration to it. And the registration, that means it's been approved. You haven't just submitted it to the copyright office. Okay. And, and tell, you can tell me if I'm getting ahead of us here. But as you say that, I'm thinking about the person listening and the question that that might come up for their head is, okay, so does that mean I need to copyright everything all the time? Technically, yes. <laughs> People hate to hear that. But whatever you file a copyright registration for is what is protected. So, you know, if you if you write a book and then you do an update to a book or you do an addition to the book or, you know, you it gets kind of technical because sometimes you can register what are called collected works, which might be a group of things. This is this is why it's so important to talk to an attorney. I'm actually talking to a potential client right now about copyright, and she has several things she has created. But the question is, has she has she published them and shown them to people or hasn't she? Because the registration's different. So, but you, you, whatever you register is what is protected and it's very narrow. It's not this broad thing of protecting everything. So, and, and obviously it can get pricey, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be careful what you want to protect, but you know, on the flip side, if you don't protect it and somebody steals it and then you want to enforce your rights, you may either not be able to do it or you may not get very much in damages. So I always say when, when people are looking at fees, legal fees and filing fees, because you have to, you have to um, pay a filing fee for everything you file with the federal government, pretty much. <laughs> when you're looking at that, it's a trade-off with, okay, yeah, somebody, what if somebody does actually steal your copyright? What if someone does steal your mark, you know, your trademark? You want to be able to have the best legal protection possible. And it's an investment. So someone who's just maybe doing photos for fun, they're not going to, they may not copyright register their photos, but a professional photographer, they may do that. And for example, if you're on social media, certain platforms like Instagram and YouTube, if you have these registrations, you can provide those and the social media platform will take it down automatically. If you don't, they might not take it down or you're going to have to jump through a lot of hoops. So these are the reasons to go ahead and register your copyright. All right. So in that example, are you saying a photographer, how would they, do they, re- do they register future photos? I mean, you know, photographers take photos all the time. Yeah. And that's where you have to figure out exactly what do you want to register. You can't register something you haven't created yet. So you can't say, well, I'm going to go out to the wild Mustang range and take pictures of Mustangs and I want to register that. You have to Uh wait till you come back and then register those photos. And that's why, as I said, one of the ways you can do it is a group of collective works, collective works, as long as they haven't been published and there's some other um, details there. If you do that, then it's a lesser filing fee and usually a cheaper legal fee. So, you know, that's why it's good to talk to an attorney. But 
yeah, you you can't just say I'm gonna copyright all my future, you know, podcasts right, and web all pages. past and present. Exactly. Yeah, that would be way too easy. <laughs> and the thing is, you have to submit at least a sample, if not all of what you're copywriting to the copyright office. So that's one of the reasons you you can't you can't obviously submit something you haven't created. Um, and sometimes it gets complicated if you've done an app, for example, and you want to register that with the copyright office, you have to provide at least some of the code. Hmm. Um, and that can be a problem. I, you know, I had a client who couldn't get the code from the app developer. They wouldn't give oh it to goodness. her. So wow. she couldn't register that copyright. So, and those are things to think about when you're going on, you know, when you're going on a website to hire an app developer, you want to make sure you're getting that code and they're not keeping the copyright because you need to go ahead and register register it yourself for your business. Okay. Okay. Thanks for letting me take you off that tangent. I'm sure you have more real life examples for us. So that's copyright. So creative work. Um, so what are trademarks? So trademarks are about your brand. And one of the one of the most famous trademarks in the horse industry is Ariat. Um you know, you can think of Stetson, you can think of Troxel, I mean, whatever it is that you are selling in the marketplace. And I want to clarify when I mean selling, that can also be a nonprofit because um, mm -hmm. a lot of people think nonprofits are different. They're a business. So a trademark protects a name, a logo, a slogan. It can even protect unique things. For example, Law and Order has their chunk chunk sound trademarked mm -hmm. and Tiffany has their special blue trademarked. So it's really something that defines your business in the marketplace. It doesn't have to be your business name necessarily. Um, sometimes people will have like an umbrella LLC or an umbrella corporation, but their brand is underneath that. Um, so Google, I think right now is owned by ABC company, something like that. You don't really know, like, I don't, I'm not really sure what the company is, but I know Google. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're registering saying, I use this in the marketplace. My brand is known as this. This is what I am. This is what I am preserving and saying, this is mine. So that's what a trademark is. Okay. All right. That's all so good. So patents, trademarks, and copyrights. Now, and you have done this already, but I would love if you could give us some real life examples from your experience. So maybe you could tell us about a business that is an equine business that would be most helpful, of course, <laughs> that didn't go through the trademark process and had troubles later on. What Can you share with us what kind of headaches we're saving ourselves from when we do go through this process? Because like you said, it is a process, um, but sh tell us why it's worth it. Yes, I actually had um, someone contacted me last year. She was on Facebook and had gotten a messenger request from someone. And it, it read like a cease and desist letter. I imagine they had it from their attorney and they just sent it to people. And it said, you are violating my trademark because you're using a name that's similar to mine. And needless to say, she was very distressed because getting letters like that can be scary. I'm used to right. seeing them, but you know, uh -huh. if, if you're not a lawyer, they sound really scary. And, you know, I mean, they're probably supposed to, you know, but so she contacted me and she said, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Because she had a website, she had merchandise out there. You know, she had all this stuff that was already branded with her name. And the one of the problems is if you are infringing on a trademark and it's proven, you have to rebrand, which can cost a lot of money. Plus people have to find you again with the new brand. So mm -hmm. I talked to her and I did one of the main things I do that we'll get into later. I did a search of the trademark office database. And I said to her, in my opinion, I think you can get your trademark. So I'll write to this person and say that 
that you're not infringing and that we're filing your trademark application. And sure enough, we filed it. There were no problems. And now she has her own trademark. So she was really scared that she was infringing on this person's trademark. And if she hadn't talked to me, you know, I've had people say this. If I hadn't talked to you, I would have just given them everything (laughs) and just figured something else out because it's scary, you know. And, And the thing is, if you're infringing on a trademark, you may have to pay that person for the money that you've earned under that trademark. I mean, it can get really expensive. This is why I tell people, get your mark as soon as possible. Uh Um, You know, I, I, I had a client who came to me and, and he said, you know, Oh, I I did talk to this guy and I said, I'll pay him everything. And I, so he didn't sign anything. So it's okay. But we filed a trademark for him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it can be scary if you don't have your mark and someone says you're infringing upon my mark. Um, another issue that can happen that I had happen is someone had created a logo that a family member created and they were a trainer on the East Coast and I knew them and I was looking actually at a Mustang for sale online at a trainer in the the West, in the Rocky Mountain West, and they had taken the logo and flipped it and used it as their logo. And, you know, I told her, I said, this is obviously a problem. And of course, one of the big issues there is if the person, obviously the person shouldn't have stolen the logo, but what if they gave really bad service? That's going to that's going to influence perhaps the first person's business. So these are all situations that you have to really think about. That's why I say it's an investment. You don't want to rebrand and you don't want to get a bad reputation because someone else is using a name or a logo or a slogan that you want to use. Yeah, that's good. Okay. And so names. So yeah, let's talk about that business names. So the lots of people in the horse industry, they end up using their last name, right? Um, so what mm-hmm. if your last name is a similar last name that somebody else had? And 30 years ago, there was, you know, there's no, I don't know who Smith horsemanship is, but that's a common last name. So what about those people that are like, well, I used my last name because that's what my dad did. And now this person on the other side of the country has the same last name. How do you typically handle that? Or what do you advise for that? Or so there's educational advice, of course. I get yeah, it. no, that's, that's <laughs> another really great question that, um, it, there, there's a lot of, of little details when it comes to trademark, which is, again, why I tell people, you know, I know LegalZoom is cheap and some people use it and they get it through, but 50% of all applications fail. And, and so you got to think of that when you're using somebody you can't even like talk to and, and, and say, but what am I going to do? Yeah. So something like Smith Horsemanship has several issues, especially if someone else is using it. The first thing is, you generally can't get a trademark if there's a surname involved. And the reason is the trade, let me back up a minute. The trademark office likes distinctive trademarks. And we have a perfect one in the equine business, as I mentioned already, Ariat. That is the last letters of Secretariat. That is a beautiful, beautiful trademark. I love that example because it's different. And I've told so many people and they're like, oh, I never knew that. That's cool. But yet it's something that, you know, it does stick in the brain and it is related to horses. So if we look at something like Smith Horsemanship, one, the trademark office is probably going to say that's a surname. And what it will do is the trademark office actually technically has two registries. The principal registry, which gives you all the all the protection you want, all the damages if you have to sue. It's the, you know, the A plus, the blue ribbon. 
it also has what's called the supplemental registry. And that is distinctly for words that are descriptive, that are surnames. You know, these are words that the trademark office doesn't really like, but it's still a brand. And when you're on that, you can still use the R in a circle when you get registered, when you get approved. You still have certain rights to enforce it. You know, it's almost as good as the principal. But if you do have to sue, you're going to have to prove some more things. And after five years, you can petition the trademark office to say, hey, I'm on the supplemental register, but I've I've acquired distinctiveness. I'm known. Smith Horsemanship is like the only one and everybody knows who I am. And you can see if you can get it moved to the principal register. So that's one thing to keep in mind is I always tell people because horse stuff can sometimes fall onto the supplemental a little easier. If you can get on that, great, take it. You're still going to have these rights. And then we'll see in five years what to do. The other issue, if two people are using Smith Horsemanship, is trademark rights in the U.S. are basically first use rights. So if someone, say, in Palo Alto, California, has been using that for 30 years and you go to trademark it, they may, and this would involve the trademark office and possibly courts and all, they may still be able to use the trademark, but they're going to be limited geographically to where they use it. Oh, and that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, if you think back, you think back like 50 years, it, we didn't have the internet or anything. Right. So people would have like a mom and pop shop yep. and that would be their brand. So it would just be there. Nowadays, we're, we're so much bigger that I, like people, people always say to me, for example, you can get a straight state trademark or a federal, like, which should I go for? I always say go for the federal because there are so few businesses that just stay in one state nowadays. <laughs> yeah. You know, last year, a lot of horse people, for example, even if they taught in their local town, they put, put something online because they couldn't teach in their local town. Right. So once it's online, it's available all over the country. So that's the other thing to consider is, you know, you if if you haven't filed your your actual registered trademark, you may still have some rights, but they're going to be limited rights. And you're going to have to probably go to court or deal with attorneys on the other side and hire your own attorney. And, you know, the cost analysis is file the trademark first <laughs> because you're going to save money in the long run. Um, because once you start hiring attorneys at hourly rates and litigation, all that, it just gets really expensive, as does rebranding. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. So for those people who are, like you said, it started 40 years ago or something, you typically would say maybe over time you can try to change your name or add some things to it to make it a little bit more unique. What would you yes. And yeah. yes. And I, I, I tell people, yeah, the first, you know, the first thing that happens, for example, when I do a trademark is I do a search to see what there is, which I know we'll, we'll probably get into later. Yes. And then if I see something that's there, there's a problem, you know, I either say, hey, let's add some words to make it unique. Or if worse okay. comes to worse and you have to rebrand, you know, let's try and make it a really positive thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you're it's going to cost money. But let's at least try and make it a, you know, hey, 40 years, it's a, you know, it's a new time. So we're going to rebrand to a new name. Yeah. Um, so I really try and work actually with my clients to say, how can we make it work so your, your business still works? Um, if you can't get the trademark for some reason, what can we do that still allows your business to be successful? Yeah. And that's the key, I think. So thank you for saying that. And the key is if you're thinking most people who are going to do this are going to take action are thinking long term, right? 
they're thinking yeah. past the next six months or year. They're saying, this is what I envision for my business in 10 years. And so I want to get myself prepared now so that as I grow, as people learn about me, then I'm already taken care of. Right. So, so that's great. Yes. You want to help them be successful with that. Okay. Yes. You have said that, um, your process, I would love for my listeners to hear what does that look like? So say they're listening to this and saying, okay, I get it. I hadn't really thought about these things, but I think I'm ready or I I'm ready to at least learn a little bit more. Tell them what does the process look like to file the trademark or the copyright and are there certain things that my listeners should be doing before they take the step to give you a call and say, I'm ready? Yes. So the process is a little different because it's a different office for copyright and trademark. So copyright still can take nine months or a year. It's not as expensive and it's not as detailed. Basically, um, I talk to the client find out, as I said, as I am with this one client, are your, is your work published? What kind of work do you have? Do you, for example, if you, if you did get an app developed by someone else or a logo, did they give you those copyright rights? And then I file that electronically with the copyright office and we wait to see what the examiner there says. And hopefully there's no problems or if there are, we can resolve them and then you get the copyright registration. It's a lot easier. The trademark registration goes through a lot of jumps. So for the big thing first is a search. So I talk to my clients and give them an intake form so I get all this information. And then what I do is I do a comprehensive search and I look at the trademark office, USPTO.gov, and I search for the name, logo, or slogan to see not only is there an identical mark, but is there a similar mark? Because what the trademark office does is it says, are there any marks that are so similar that there's going to be confusion in the marketplace? That's their big thing that they're looking at. And they consider about 13 factors. So does it sound alike? Are the words similar? You know, could someone be confused by it? Is it the same um, group of consumers? And the other issue is a trademark is filed in at least one class. There are 45 classes split between goods and services. And so I look to see, okay, is there a similar or identical name, but is it in a different class? So it it will probably not cause a problem. So that's a that's actually a really super important part that people don't realize how detail-oriented that can be. I have people come to me and say, hey, I looked and there's nothing like mine. And I look and go, well, there may not be identical, but this one is similar enough. We may have an issue. And, you know, the trademark office, I, I can never say 100% because it's not my decision. It's the examining right. attorney at the trademark office. But I will give, you know, a percentage or say, this looks good, or we might have this issue and, and then leave it up to the person to decide. I've had clients who have a name where I say, I don't know if you're going to get this through. And they say, let's try it. Because if you don't get it through, at least, you know, nobody else is going to get it through either. Um, And that's the other thing is when I look at a name, sometimes I will look at all the documents that have been filed to see, was there a problem with it? You know, is there, there are live marks and dead marks. Is there a reason it's dead? And is that because the trademark office wouldn't approve it? And so we're going to have the same problem. So that, that, that's a a big search I do. And then I provide a legal analysis to the client and we talk. If I look and that name is taken and in the class and there is just no way, it's like, boom, that's not going to work. Then I'll do a second search um, because 
you know, I, if, if I look and it's, there's no possible way, let's do a second search if you have a second name. So mm-hmm. I do the search and we talk about the possibilities, probabilities of registration. And I also talk about what classes the registration should be in. As I said, there's 45 split between goods and services. And, you know, horse businesses generally fit under, you know, a small handful of those. But as people are doing online stuff, as, for example, they're creating downloadable videos, you know, the trademark office, it's morphing a little bit right now. It's a little bit unpredictable because last year they had an unbelievable amount of applications because so many people were either out of work and started their own business mm-hmm. or said, wow, COVID-19 has really shocked me into realizing I want to do something different with my life. So they are inundated with applications right now. And some of the decisions are a little interesting <laughs> that we're getting. Uh-huh. Um, but there, so there are different, there are different classes. And we talk about what classes do you want them to be in. When you file an application, you can't add to it once it's been filed. So we really talk about what what's your description, what's your business, you know, what's your service, all of that. Then I actually file the application. There's two different kinds. There's a 1A, which is when you're using your mark, and there's a 1B, which is called intent to use. So let's say you have a great idea for a brand name, and you really mean to use it. It's not like the a domain name where you can buy it and never use it. You have to use your trademark at some point. So if you have a name that you really like, but you're not using it yet, we can put in an application and with extensions, if it's approved, you'll have about three years to show you're actually using that mark. So that's that's the 1B. The 1A application, I have to create specimens and get them from my clients to show the trademark office you are actually using that in commerce. And that can be a website. It can be a tag with a price on it. It can be an invoice with certain information redacted. So I put all that together and I send that into the trademark office. And then actually right now they're running about six months until we hear that it's been assigned to an examining attorney. And the examining attorney does another search and they make the decision as to whether the trademark office is going to register it or not. Now they can issue what's called a simple office action, which is, you know, we want to put it in more classes. We don't like your description. We want to change the description a little bit, Um, things like that. They're very simple to fix. They're not a big deal. They can also issue a substantive office action. And that's where we get into them saying there's confusion in the marketplace. And usually we'll have a good idea from the search. Although I am cautioning my clients right now that there, there is a little bit of um, unusual behavior by the trademark office. So we do our best and then we figure out what are we going to do at that point. If we can overcome the office action, then we, we do that. We have six months to answer an office action. So you see, this is really starting to take a lot of time. Yeah. Then it's published in what's called, and let's say we overcome the office action. We have two, two choices, two chances really to do that. Then it's published in what's called the Trademark Official Gazette, which is online. And what that does is it sits there for 30 days and someone, like I monitor trademarks for my clients. So someone can go in and say, hey, the examining attorney didn't think this was close to my client's mark, but I think it is. And someone can file an opposition and then we've got to deal with the opposition. If it gets through that and there's no problem, then the trademark office will say in 11 weeks, you get your registration. Again, I caution my clients that sometimes the trademark office will take the file back and look at it again, just 
because they do. <laughs> and if that doesn't happen, then, um, you know, in about three months, you'll get the actual certificate. So we're looking, you know, five to six months till it's even assigned, then another 30 days, if, if it's all good, another 30 days for the, the Trademark Official Gazette publication, then another 11 weeks. So we're looking at like a year. So it's really good to get it in as soon as possible <laughs> because it is a long process. And, you know, I could do a search today and everything could be fine. And three days from now, someone could have gone ahead and put in a registration, an application for what you want. And those registrations, when they go in, you know, they're assigned as they come in. So if someone else has a registration and you know, it's an intent to use or they're, you know, taking a long time to go through the process or whatever, your application is going to be held up. So that's why I tell people, let's get it in as soon as we know. And then we literally just sit and wait and wait and wait. Oh my <laughs> and, goodness. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long process. And then of course, once you get the registration between the fifth and sixth year, we have to actually provide more documents showing you're still using the mark. So, you know, it's not something you can get and just sit on like a domain. And I tell my clients, use your mark, you know, the applications and use your mark because people say, oh, do I have to wait till I actually get the registration? No, no, just just use it. You know, don't worry about it. Just keep using it. Um, I was going to ask that. So I'm glad you said that. that makes yes. Sense. Yes. And, you know, intent to use if there's a mark you want to use, use it. And uh -huh. one thing I see a lot of people ask me about is, and I see this all the time online, you'll see a name with TM after it. And that has no legal significance whatsoever. People use it. And I, uh -huh. I tell my clients if they want to, they can use it. But uh -huh. there's no legal significance there. If you have a registered trademark, you put the R in a circle after it. If you have a registered copyright, you put a C in a circle after it. Um, if you see a TM, that, that doesn't actually mean anything. Maybe they have an application in, maybe they have a registration and they didn't know they could use the R in a circle, but that doesn't bar you. So if you see a name and say, oh, they have a trademark because they have a TM, that's not necessarily true. Oh, that's so interesting. So, but you say people could use it. So, because the majority of us see that and we think, oh, that means something, right? So if you're in that year to year and a half long process, maybe if you put that TM there, then it might keep somebody from using it if they saw yours. Yeah. What I do when I see it, because I'm a trademark attorney, is <laughs> no. I will go to the trademark office. I'm like, huh, is this oh, really funny. registered? And it's like, yeah. no, it's not. It's not yeah. registered. There's no application. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of like, okay, with the copyright. So some people use that where they've never actually filed a copyright. Yes. And, you know, the Supreme Court came down about a year and a half ago now, I think, saying that to get the full enforcement of the copyright, you not only have to apply, but the registration has to be approved. So again, if you're going to, if you're going to use that and you're going to have to, uh, you know, enforce it at some point, you've got to have that registered copyright. And again, that's going to take nine months to a year if there's no problems. So it's always about get it in as soon as you can. Okay. So I'm thinking again about our equine photographers that might be listening. And so would you say in what use case scenarios, you see professional equine photographers all the time. So what does a use case scenario look like for them? Do they say, okay, this shoot I know is going to be I guess my question is, how do they know what to copyright and what not to copyright out of the thousands of pictures that they take? 
Yeah, and that's where it gets hard because you know, you've got to figure where are you putting it, how are you putting it, how are you using it, um, you know. And again, that's where that cost analysis basis comes in. So, because if you're going to enforce it, that's that's obviously going to cost money too. You know, right. there are some there are some people, as I said, who take pictures and put them up, and somebody uses them, and they're upset. But it's just not going to be worth it financially to enforce it. But then, if somebody's making their their living out of this and right. they're putting up, you know, say they do a photo shoot, um, you know, of someone with their horse for a business, or I know some people do that for senior pictures or for, you know, something like that engagement or something, you know, if you can keep those as a collected work before they're published and file that, that copyright registration, then you're going to have protection for that. And that may be worth it. Um, it's really hard with the internet. I mean, that yeah. does make it really, really difficult. Um, and, you know, I don't know. They're trying to make the copyright an easier process because I think they're starting to recognize so many professionals have their photos online because they have to have them online to show people, and right. yet people are taking them. So mm-hmm. that's where that's where it really is a cost a cost analysis. You know, what what is going to be worth it for you to go ahead and register? Um, and the copyright process, that is not as expensive as the trademark process. Um, and as I said, if you can do it as unpublished works, you can put 10 together at once. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to do 10 individual photos. You could put 10 together as a collection mm-hmm. and say, oh, I'm going to do all these at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes, and you totally correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes just reaching out to the person that did it and saying, hey, that was mine. You used it. You shouldn't have. Sometimes then they'd like, oh, but my bad, I'll take it down, you know, without having to go the legal route. You know, I have a super simple example where I post things on social media, like a quote, right? Or an mm-hmm. image that I created with a quote and I have my logo on it, just a little watermark. Well, somebody that it's funny because it was somebody that even I follow and that happened to follow me. She, she took that. She just took a screenshot of it. She cropped my logo out and then posted it. It just like it was hers. Right. And I was like, wow, the world that's so just weird to me. And so I sent her a message and I was like, Hey, I'm so glad that that inspired you. But instead of taking it and cropping my logo, I'd really appreciate it if you would just share it directly. So people know that it came from me. She never replied, but she did take it down. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And that's what I tell people is, you know, I, while I did litigation, I think if we can find ways to work things out, amicably, you know, that's always the best route to go because nobody needs the stress <laughs> of yeah. of dealing with it. And I've also seen people who have followers and the followers have contacted the person and mm-hmm. said, hey, that's copyright, you know, that's copyright protected or, you know, that's so-and-so's, you need to take it down. And the pressure has caused them to take it down. You know, you can always get, if it's registered, you can always get you, me or some other lawyer to write a letter, obviously, or sometimes you can get the media platform to take it down. Um, but yeah, if, if people could just talk to each other and say, Hey, just share the link right? <laughs> or exactly. just, give, just me give me credit. credit. Yeah, yeah. Give me credit and we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think if people could work together on it, that would just be, be easier for everybody involved. Yeah. Okay. This has been so, so helpful. I cannot wait for my listeners to listen in on this conversation and see how they can apply it in their own business. So before we close up, I would love to know if there's anything else that you think that my listeners should know about working with an equine attorney, or maybe just some other specific things that you have seen equine businesses struggle with that they should be thinking about ahead of time. Um, I really think that equine businesses really need to see their business as a business. And it's hard because we love 
what we do. I, you know, there are a lot of businesses like that, but especially the equine business, we're willing to stand in the heat to teach or the snow or whatever it is, because we just love horses. We love the horse world, but it's also a business. So when you're putting together your business plan or your budget, if you can if you can go ahead and just figure in this as an investment, because it will help your business grow. I mean, the horse industry just keeps growing. And if people would see it that way, I think it would really take a lot of headaches away from it later. You know, we love to do things on a handshake. We love to figure that everybody's going to work together. But if we can just take these places where we protect our businesses, I think it would go a long way to taking stress out of out of running an equine business. Because if we can minimize the stress, then we can have the most enjoyment possible. Absolutely. That's so good. And even as you say that, I'm thinking about those people who want it to be a sustainable business, right? You're, you took it from something that you enjoyed and it was a hobby and you created a business out of it, but in order for it to be sustainable, you do have to treat it as a business. So yes, um, yes. And that, and that can be hard. And, and that's why I also encourage people to go ahead and use an attorney rather than legal zoom, which is not a law firm, because then you have an attorney you could really talk to. And especially if it's an equine attorney, you may have other issues, for example, business formation, you know, liability, insurance, um, you know, all sorts of issues. You need to include your business in your estate plan, contracts, of course, and you can really talk to someone about it rather than going to LegalZoom, who they're not going to have, they're not lawyers, first of all, but they're especially not going to have equine, you know, law experience. So if you can really think of it as a sustainable business and how can you treat it like that, um, then, then I think it makes it even more enjoyable. Absolutely. Okay. This was so good. All right. Before we go, would you please tell everybody where they can find you? Now, of course, listeners, you know that I will have all of these links on the show notes for this episode. So you can go to stormlily.com slash 34 for episode 34, but will you go ahead and just tell them verbally where they can connect with you online? Sure. So I have several different websites and social media. My general virtual law firm is windhorselegal.com. And that's where I have all my different practice areas, including equine law. And then I even have a law a website that's specifically for equine law. That's horsesandthelaw.com. And that's where I have all my media. I have some free eBooks. I have a horses and the law podcast I do. Um, but those are my two main websites. And then from there, from each one, you can find me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So I'm under there under Windhorse Legal and then also Horses and the Law or sometimes a little different um, combination of Horses and the Law because that's a little long for Twitter. <laughs> but if you go to either if you go to either website, then then you can find me there and you can also find a contact form. Um, the best way to contact me is email. I'm at joejo at windhorselegal.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was so, so helpful. I really appreciate you taking time to share your expertise. And I know my listeners are going to really appreciate hearing it too. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoy working with with equine businesses and even horse people with their personal equine legal needs. So thank you so much for having me. And I encourage people if they have a, a question just to send me an email. Okay, what did I tell you? She's so good. I so, so appreciate Joe taking the time to share this information with us today. Now, of course, if you have any questions, 
send those to Joe. Don't send your trademark questions to me. But if you have any marketing questions, please let me know. I always love hearing from you. Let me know if there's ever an episode that you're like, oh, that was really helpful. That would be good for me to know as well so I can create more of that content, okay? Now, I would also be so grateful. If you happen to listen on Apple Podcasts, there is a way that you can leave a review and rate the podcast. It's super simple and easy. You do it from your app. And if you enjoy the podcast, I would be so grateful if you would do that because it also will tell Apple who else that they should be showing that podcast to or my podcast to. And so I would appreciate that. And of course, if you have friends that you think would benefit from it, please feel free to share the link at any time stormlily.com slash podcast. All right. Thank you again for joining me here today. I hope you will come back next week. We are going to dive back into email marketing and I'm going to give you some specific success tips that's going to help you with your awesome freebie so that you can create a stellar email marketing list. So I'll see you next week. Have an awesome day. 